Scott. Okay, good morning. I hope you won't mind that I'll have us turn back to where we were last week in Luke chapter 13. And just to read this again, probably make reference a few times to it, so good to just be reminded of what this story had in it, and especially for those who might not have been here last week. Luke chapter 13. And uh, verse 10. Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, You are loosed from your infirmity and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God and you'll remember we just thought about how uh, what a wonderful scene that was and the compassionate heart of the Savior coming out and being on display for everyone to see because that is truly who he is he is a most lovely person in every way and at all times and he is constantly manifesting that beautiful character in acts of kindness and compassion like he did on this occasion. And so a day that woman would never forget. And she glorified God. But we talked about how that whole scene changed and it was like a darkness came into the room. So we read of verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days in which therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. And so here was opposition. Opposition to the lovely Lord um, who always did everything in the most wonderful way. Even when he had to rebuke people, uh, he was always righteous in it. He was always pure in it. And there was always a heart of love behind it. But yet there will always be, there always have been, and there will continue to be those who take their stand against the Lord and they want to accuse the Lord. They want to accuse God that he has done something wrong, that they've got something legitimate that they can hold against him. And uh, not only will they do this in their own heart, in their own thoughts, but they will open their mouth up and they will seek to influence others to think the same way, to take the same stand that they're taking against the Lord. But then the Lord answered, and that wonderful verse from Psalm 19, the entrance of your words gives light. So the Lord opened up his mouth and he spoke, and that whole place was filled with light. And everybody saw clearly that this ruler of the synagogue was a foolish man. And so was everyone else who thought the same way as him. Verse 15, the Lord then answered him and said, hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. 
and so here he makes it so clear how hypocritical they're being perhaps even that very day that ruler of the synagogue and the other adversaries in that synagogue they had done that very thing they'd untied their ox and led it to water on the sabbath they had untied their donkey and led it to water on the sabbath and so jesus is saying can't i untie this woman can't i untie this sister of yours this daughter of abraham she's been tied up by satan for 18 years you will not permit me to untie her to unbind her she's been in this place for 18 years and so the hypocrisy of the ruler was evident to everybody in that place and it says in verse 17 and when he said these things all his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitudes rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him this is how things are going to end things are going to end in god being glorified this is how things are, this is how the story ends it's going to end with the glory of god but in the meantime in the meantime there are those who will oppose him and speak against him and try and influence others to do the same but eventually the time will come one way or another at one time or another when anyone who takes their stand against the lord and is so sure that they have something legitimate to hold against him the time will come when they will be ashamed of that when they will brought be brought to humiliation over that and uh he will be vindicated in every way every way and it will be clearly seen that everything that he has ever done has been done perfectly <clears throat> People do this today, though, and I thought maybe I'll just give this quote, uh, and uh, then we'll leave this this um, this part of the the lesson behind. But uh, just to linger on it for just a little bit longer, this whole idea that there are people in our lives, perhaps today, who would speak against the Lord, and uh, they would voice that to us. They would say. God has done what is wrong. God is not righteous. He is not loving. And so they, whatever evidence they seem to have, they gather it all up. They take an inventory of a situation in, in their life or someone else's life, and they put it forth, and they say, no, God is not good. God is not right. And uh, these things have happened for a long time. And the day is coming when God is going to vindicate himself in every way. Here's a quote from an author I'd like to share with you. The author says, It has become common and almost popular to question God and to find fault with his dealings with men. Some dare to go as far as the Israelites did in the days of Ezekiel and say, The way of the Lord is not fair. But the Israelites' ideas of him were perverted by the unequal character of their own ways. So, beholding his doings, his work, with distorted vision, they read their own evil into what they saw of God. They arrived at a mistaken idea of God. Their God was a God of their imagination, a being altogether different from what God really is. And that's the thing that we as the people of God, we have to know who God really 
is. The, the world is filled with people who don't know who God really is. And they've come to the wrong conclusions about him. That should not happen to the people of God. In fact, we should be a testimony in this world as to what he truly is like. And we should show that especially by our lives. And in the midst of all this opposition, God is at work. That's, I love this thought. I mean, just think about it. In the midst of all this opposition in the world, and uh, who could count how many people in their hearts or with their mouths are standing up even at this very hour and opposing him? and seeking to influence others against him. How much is that happening? One, sometimes I think about it like, how how does God just put up with it? And then I think back to my own life, I say, how how much does God put up with it with me? (laughs) It's interesting because I've opposed him myself. You see? I've taken my stand against the Lord. I was so sure that I had something against him, that he was doing what was wrong. And uh, I went on that way for a while. But you know what's interesting is now that anyone who knows what I'm talking about in a personal way, they know it from their own life. You look back on that now, and uh, how do you see yourself? (laughs) How do you see yourself? I can tell you how I see myself. I look back at myself and say, you are an idiot. (laughs) I mean, really, now that I see the Lord better, and I understand him better, and I, I see that he is the lovely person that the scriptures present him to be, But I know it personally, I look back at the resistance or the objections or the false conclusions that I came to about him, and I just say, it was so foolish, and I'm just humiliated about it, you know? And such will happen to all, one way or another, one time or another. But in the midst of it all, He's at work. (laughs) In the midst of all of this rebellion and opposition and slandering of his character, he doesn't stop working. He just keeps working. And the the compassion of his heart is just, it it never ceases to be put on display in acts of kindness and generosity and patience. And sometimes we don't even realize. (laughs) We don't even realize just uh, how much of his goodness is being put on display just another passage maybe to help us see this. Again, go to Matthew chapter 9. Just another passage so we can see the heart of the Savior for what it really is. And to see the, the activity of the Lord, that he is busy at work. And one of the primary things that he's at work doing is delivering, saving people. He's delivering people like he did that woman in the synagogue. He delivered her. He saved her. And that's the primary work that our Savior is about doing, even in the midst of enemies. Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 35. When Jesus went about, or then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, just like we read in the Gospel of Luke, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease. Verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The compassion in the heart of the Savior 
And then yet people would take their stand against him and say that he is not so. He has done what is wrong, and yet what they are witnessing is the goodness of God. That was that verse we looked at last time. I said even the children here should have no problem remembering he is good and does good. He is good as to his character, his innate character. He just is good. And any other conclusion that's opposed to that is wrong. And one day it'll be clear to everyone that that is the case. But he is good and faith believes it. And the life of the believer sees it, especially the life of the believer sees it in their, their own life. But then he's, he is good and he does good. He does good. He's constantly manifesting his goodness in acts of kindness. And especially to deliver. Especially to deliver. And that's what I'd like to focus on here uh, with the rest of our time. is just his goodness expressed especially to deliver. So I want to tell you about three people to illustrate this. Three people. It's interesting, I didn't plan it this way, but they actually all happen to begin with J. I'm not all, I don't set out to alliterate things, but worked out this way just fine. The first person I want to take you to is actually the second person I thought of. The second person I want to take you to is the first person I thought of. The third person I want to take you to is really the first person I should have thought of. I won't say that again, but, <laughs> but that's the way it worked out. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. And in this scene here, we're just going to read one verse here in this chapter. Just one verse, but I'll remind you of the scene the first person that we're going to look at is Jacob. Jacob. And if you remember the story here, and you try to enter into the heart of Jacob and the weight of sorrow that's there, so much has happened in his life. I mean, if we go back in time, perhaps the first real uh, epic event that happened that, that just brought his heart down was the, the death of his beloved wife, Rachel. But then, we all know that, dramatic story about how his sons came back with this tunic, this multicolored tunic with blood on it, and they led their father to believe that Joseph, that favored son whom he loved, the son of his old age, had been killed. And that just brought his heart right down. Um, <laughs> I think after that day, every time he looked at Jacob, he was sad because of Joseph. And then a famine came into the land. <laughs> a famine came into the land. And so now he's got this going on, this detail of his life. Food is scarce. They hear that food is available in Egypt, so he sends his ten sons, keeping Benjamin at home, the youngest one, Joseph's brother. He sends the other ten into, into Egypt. They go down there, and uh, they meet who? <laughs> Unbeknownst to them, Joseph, a whole lot of drama unfolds there. We can't really go into that this morning, but a whole lot of drama unfolds there. And Joseph says, if you want to get any grain the next time you come, you've got to bring your youngest brother with you. And I'm going to keep Simeon here, your brother Simeon, in prison until you get back. So the nine brothers come back to Jacob. They tell him what happened. They don't know it's Joseph at this point. 
And so now he's got this happening to him. He says, uh, now my son Simeon is gone. He's there in prison in Egypt. And this man who rules the land wants you to bring Benjamin. Do you realize how close Benjamin is to my heart? And you want to take him? So he's gathering up all this. And it's not, not very pleasing to him at all. Well, the food runs out. I always thought this was kind of curious. Like they just left Simeon there in Egypt until all their food ran out. Simeon's probably like, what am I? <laughs> You're just going to leave me here this whole time? They leave Simeon there in Egypt. And finally, the food runs out for Jacob and his family. And Jacob says to his sons, go back and get some more food. And uh, they tell him, listen, we can't go back there and Benjamin. We have to bring Benjamin. So look at verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. And this is the phrase that we're here at. For all these things are against me. This was Jacob's assessment of God's work in his life. As he gathered up... I'll wait. <laughs> As he gathered up all the evidence, this is his conclusion. All these things are against me. And who knows what thoughts may have entered into his mind about God. But here's the point. God was at work. God, in the midst of all of these details... And this seemingly, well, truly sorrowful circumstances, I don't want to eliminate that some things are hard. Even though God is at work, they could still be difficult. But nevertheless, God was at work. In fact, God was at work in such a way to do something so incredible and so surprising that Jacob, he wouldn't even believe it when he was told it. Jacob was about to find out that his son, whom he thought was dead, was alive and all the blessings that would come from that and God was at work behind this whole scene and yet Jacob's assessment of it was that all these things are against me and how easy it is to do that how easy it is for even the people of God to assess their circumstances and come to certain conclusions that everything's against me and then the temptation to rise up in our hearts and maybe even our, with our mouth and take a stand against the Lord. Oh, may it not be so, may it not be so. Because God is at work doing most, the most surprising things. Things with the ultimate goal that he might deliver, that he might save. Look at um, chapter 45, verse 7, one verse here. Chapter 45, verse 27. This is when they come back the second time the brothers, and they tell their father that Joseph is alive. And <laughs> um, actually, look at verse 26. says, And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. Oh, my God. God was at work in the most remarkable way, in such a surprising way, that Jacob couldn't even believe it. And you and I ought to expect that, you know. 
you and I, especially as the people of God, we ought to expect that God is at work in the most surprising ways. Just wait, just wait to see what he's been up to. Wait to see what he's been up to. Jacob can't even believe it. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. He was a different man. (laughs) He was a different man. Once he saw and had a real taste that God is good, it changed him. He said, okay, wow. The second J was the first one that I thought of, Joseph. Just look at that same chapter. We know Joseph's story, uh, and you can go through the storyline and say, um, you know, when his brothers were against him, you'd say, all these things are against me. Wow. My own brother, my own brethren are against me. And then they, they grabbed him. And you imagine how violently they grabbed him. They ripped that coat off him. They threw him in that pit. And there in the pit he could say, all these things are against me. And then they, the pit, well, he hears them talking about how they're going to kill him. Then they take him out of the pit. They sell him to the Ishmaelites. He goes down to Egypt as a slave. And as he's going down to Egypt as a slave, he says, no doubt in his mind, all these things are against me. He gets to Potiphar's house. What happens there? Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and she these seductive words to him and he, re- he resists and he flees out of the house but she grabs his coat and she claims that he attempted to lie with her and so she tells her husband that. So he's slandered. He's like, all these things are against me. And then the master, I don't know whether he believed his wife or not, something in me tells me that he had to do this, but because what is he going to do? Would not believe his wife, but I have a hard time thinking he didn't know the man Joseph. But he puts him in prison, and they're in prison. Joseph's sitting in prison, and he's like, all these things are against me. And then there's a butler and a baker. They come in, and he interprets their dreams for him, them, and the butler gets raised up back to serving Pharaoh, and Joseph says to him, remember me when you get out of here. Remember me and speak well of me. Get me out of this place. But the butler doesn't remember him. And for two years, Joseph just sitting in that prison, just waiting. And he says, all these things are against me, right? But God was at work. (laughs) God was at work. And we know the story, right? We know the story. We know how it ends. And and sometimes when you're reading, maybe maybe you're kind of like... just want to reach into the story and say, Joseph, it's going to be okay, Joseph. Joseph, it's going to be okay. God is at work. Wait till you see what he's doing. You're going to be so surprised, Joseph. (laughs) And it's like we just want to be there with him and try and encourage him in the midst of his circumstances, which everything just seems against him. And what happens, right? (laughs) He's, He's lifted up by Pharaoh. He's made ruler of everything. Only Pharaoh is greater than him. To what end? What was God really at work doing? What was the end that the Lord... Yes, compassion and mercy. But one thing in particular, look at verse 7 of chapter 45. This is what Joseph says to his brothers. 
God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Brothers and sisters, like we, we have to be so convinced in the midst of all of the slander of our great God that happens around us and all the misjudging of his ways and of his character, we have to know that he is good and that he does good and he's constantly at work to this very end that he might deliver people, that he might save people. He's doing it today. Wouldn't it be great if someone got saved here, right here today? Someone trusted the Savior and knew the forgiveness of sins and his shed blood. (laughs) Maybe someone here has been resisting a long time and Maybe the day has come when you need to just believe it. (laughs) He's a lovely Savior. And in order to bring deliverance, well, I'm getting ahead of myself to the last J, aren't I? (laughs) The last J. By the way, as before I just turn to this last J, some of you are like, how are you not going to Genesis 50, verse 20? So maybe just go there, and then we'll get to our last J. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is Joseph speaking again to his brothers. This famous, famous verse. But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. And to what end again? To bring, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, I know if I'm getting warm up here, you're probably getting warm up there, so we're almost done. I got one more J to finish up with. I think you probably know who it is. The first one is Jacob, then it was Joseph, and the last one is Jehoshaphat. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we'll finish up with him. We're here at the scene of the cross. And verse 45, just to remind us of the scene, it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just a couple of verses to bring us back to that scene, but we could read so many more that would put before us the details of this very dramatic and sad scene there at the cross. The shame of it, the the pain of it, the the evil of it all, the darkness, the, the humiliation and the, just the anger of the wrath of God there. And anyone that was there, you know, seeing this abandonment, this scene of shame, anyone who was there would say, all these things are against this man. Certainly you would not try to say to me that God is at work here. See, like us Christians, we smile, right? (laughs) We smile at that statement. 
You can't tell me that in such a dark scene as this that God is at work. You can't tell me in this place that he's about to deliver people. This can't be a scene of salvation. And yet we know, right? It is the greatest scene of salvation. It is the greatest work of God, the darkest day, but the greatest day. Where the Savior gave his life and shed his blood so that we could be delivered. It is the work of God. And yet we look at that scene and we could say, really? Look at this. How could God really be at work here? And yet it was the greatest work he's ever done. Brothers and sisters, whatever's going on in your life, or maybe if there's someone here that has not yet trusted the Savior yet, whatever it is that's happening, don't come to the wrong conclusions about the great and wonderful God. He loves you. <laughs> and he has the most surprising and wonderful things in mind for you. Trust him. <laughs> Wait on him expectantly to see what it is that he is going to do. The last verse I'll read is in Revelation. The last verse, Revelation, just two verses. And then I'll close in prayer. Revelation chapter 1. Actually, just uh, verse 5. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And look at this wonderful, wonderful phrase, right? This, these beautiful words. To him, that is to Jesus, who loved us and loosed us from our sins in his blood. Doesn't that just take us right back to that story that we started with? What did he do for that woman? He loosed her, didn't he? <laughs> He loosed her. He saved her. He delivered her because he's good. And we know that deliverance. We know an even greater deliverance. We have been loosed, freed from our bondage. We've been delivered at great cost. Great, great cost. A great work. The work of Calvary. The work of our Savior. Who, even in this verse, speaks of his blood that was shed for us. Oh, we have such a good God. <laughs> and anyone who thinks otherwise, well, I guess you, if you're not willing to believe that, you'll go on in your, in your assessment, and one day, one way or another, you'll be brought to humiliation over that, and you'll see that you are utterly wrong about him, and you'll be so ashamed of it, because he is so good. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we would just think of you in particular and realize your goodness. You have a heart to save and that you were not even willing to spare your own son, your beloved son, in order to do that. How good you are. How kind. And Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, we think of you in particular, that you loved us and gave yourself for us. It was such a dark day. And you can, we could just imagine, Lord, that people around were saying 
nothing good could come out of this. And yet, it was the greatest work that you ever did, the greatest work of deliverance that will ever be accomplished. In fact, all deliverance has its root in Calvary. And so we just, we just rejoice at your character and that you're constantly manifesting that character in the world. And although some people will take their stand against you and they will think ill of you and they will point the finger at you and be so assured in their heart that you have done what is wrong, we know that you are good and that you do good and that all your ways are good. And so we would just remind ourselves about that, especially as your people and especially as we look at the cross. What a great work of deliverance was accomplished there. So we love you and just ask all these things, giving thanks in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.